Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, and my name is Josh Fulton. I'm one of the Clinical Education Fellows. And hello, my name is Dean Walton. I'm also one of the Clinical Educational Fellows. And we're joined today by Dr. John Williamson, and we're going to talk through some common referrals you would see in a neurology clinic. This is aimed at generally medical students, and we're going to talk through the approach about how you would manage these common referrals. So the, the first case that we're going to go through, John, um, it's a, a GP referral that's come in, and the referral says, can you please see this 45-year-old gentleman who is presented with arm tremors? He's particularly concerned about Parkinson's disease. So just starting with that initial stem, how would you approach um, a, a patient such as this, or what starts going through your mind where, when you're, you're given a, a case like this? Okay, thanks, Dean. So I think referring tremor is quite a common presentation that we would see in a general neurology clinic. Um, and you, yeah, you often don't get a lot more information than this in the referral. So obviously, um, the, the GP has revealed that one of the patient's concerns, which is not uncommon, is that they might have Parkinson's disease. So I guess my first thought really on hearing this is, well, he's 45 years old, that'd be very young for Parkinson's disease, although it can, you know, can come at a young age. Um, and although tremor is a very prominent symptom in Parkinson's disease, it's actually defined more by the uh, other symptoms than signs that you see in this condition. So tremor might be the most noticeable symptom, but it's actually bradykinesia that patients that, that will confirm the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. So an absence or a slowness of movement. So you'd certainly be looking in the history to see if there's any elements of bradykinesia, either from the history or examination that you can find. Um, thinking more specifically of, about tremor, so you'd want to know what part of the body is tremulous. So they've mentioned the arms there. You'd want to know if there are any other body parts that are tremulous. Um, you'd want to confirm that it is a tremor, not another form of uh, kind of movement disorder that could be mistaken for a tremor. So things such as myoclonus or tics that I guess could be could be confused and uh, you'd want to know when the tremors occurring so is it occurring when they're resting or is it occurring when they're they're using the arms so when they're either maintaining posture or when they're say approaching a target uh, those would also be important information and then as with any history you want to know uh, are there any things that make it better or make it worse and in particular with tremor you'd be asking about alcohol and whether that uh, that can improve things because that might tell you some clues and then I guess generally you'd want to also check is what's the family history. Some tremors do run in families. Uh, and finally, about medications. So tremor can be a side effect of lots of very commonly prescribed medications. So you'd want to be checking for those. So uh, yeah, obviously you do most of your thinking when the patient's in the room with you, you're taking that story. But those are my initial thoughts, I think. That's great, so thank you for that. And uh, sort of giving us a systematic approach in terms of how you would how you would look at this patient, even from a small amount of detail for, from the referral. So this gentleman finally comes to clinic and you, you're able to take a, obviously a more detailed history uh, and able to have the opportunity to examine him as well. So in terms of his history, he's noticed that the tremor is in both of his hands and it started in both of the sort of uh, uh, the upper limbs several years ago, but during that time it slowly progressed and slowly worsened. The thing that's made him concerned more recently is actually now he started to notice his head getting involved, 
So he's having some slight uh, uh, sort of no-no um, uh, nodding of the head. So initially it didn't bother him too much um, when performing his performing tasks in general. But then over the last six to 12 months, he has started to notice it is interfering uh, with general activities in his daily living. Um, doesn't particularly notice it at rest and he hasn't noticed any change in his voice. Discussing more so specifically about alcohol, he does find that when he goes down the pub he has a lot of difficulty holding his pint initially, but by the end of the, uh, the first pint he's able to hold it quite steadily and when he go, moves on to his second. He's normally fit and well, he's got no past medical history, takes no regular medication, no known allergies, takes nothing over the counter or no recreational drug use. In terms of family history, he does know that his mother has something quite similar, but it was in her 50s that she started to notice it and there's no other family history to note. When you go on to examine him, uh, at rest you can't see any form of tremor um, or any abnormal movements. When he holds his hands out, he has a mild, high frequency, but small amplitude, bilateral, symmetrical tremor, um, both on outstretching his hands and putting his hands underneath the chin. Mm -hmm. um, there's no intention component to this when he's doing the finger-nose testing. Um, but the, there is some slight tremor all the way through the movements uh, when doing this task. He does have a slight head tremor along with this, um, and the tremor is also present when doing more say uh, a more complicated task such as uh, writing a sentence. His speech appears normal, and importantly, when you uh, assess his tone and movement, there's no rigidity and no bradykinesia. So quite a lot of information there from the from the clinic, both in history and examination. What are your thought processes now, uh, having heard that, and also uh, in particular addressing his concerns? Okay, yeah. So a lot lot of information there. So just thinking about the key points that you've said. So it's been kind of gradually progressive um, over the time. So it's not it's not come on all of a sudden, and it seems to be a fairly symmetrical tremor involving both upper limbs as well as his head. And there's definitely kind of a, an action, which has like an action tremor, so when he's using the hands, but particularly a postural action tremor, so when his hands are maintaining posture. Um, the, the other really important things there, uh, I guess, are the negative, important negatives from the examination. So I said before about wanting to make sure there were no features that could be compatible with, say, Parkinson's disease. And I think the key thing there on the examination is there's no bradykinesia or rigidity. So, you know, a very superficial level, if the patient's main concern about this tremor is, could this be the early signs of Parkinson's disease? I think I would be saying that seems very unlikely on the basis of this examination. However, I think, you know, we probably need to be doing a little bit more than just saying what it isn't, and we need to think more, so what sorts of things could this be? So, um, based on this postural action tremor, um, there's, a, there's a clue there perhaps that the alcohol makes things a little bit better for it. I think the most likely diagnosis here would be what we call an essential tremor. An essential tremor can run in families, which we call familial essential tremor. And uh, I would certainly uh, be thinking that's very likely here, given that he also has a family history of this tremor. Uh, he might want to know, so what are the other things it could be if it's not uh, an essential tremor? And really, with this kind of postural tremor, you'd think, okay, could this be a form of enhanced physiological tremor? So that would be, uh, you know, all, all of us, if you hold your hand very steady, will notice a very fine tremor. Some of us, that, that is more noticeable, and we call that an enhanced physiological tremor. Might be made worse with things like stress and anxiety or caffeinated drinks, things like that. Um, 
And then the other things that you'd think about, but I think is unlikely in this case, would be whether it could be a form of dystonic tremor. So dystonia, uh, meaning abnormal muscle contractions uh, due to a basal ganglia uh, problem, uh, sometimes that can manifest with a tremor. Perhaps the clues there normally are that it would be a bit more asymmetric. So, uh, yeah, so that, that, that's my thoughts at this point. That's great, thank you. So if, uh, thinking about potentially the, the more likely diagnosis here of, um, a, of a central tremor, and you, you hinted there that there might be a familial component to this, um, other than sort of giving him his reassurance from a Parkinson's perspective, what, what else could we potentially offer him in terms of managing this, this tremor if it yeah. is, in this case, as, as troubling as it is? Yeah, given it's uh, impacting him on a daily basis, I think it is worthwhile talking about maybe some of the therapeutic options available. And in the first instance, you would think maybe if there's no contraindications, trialing something like propanolol, which is a beta blocker. Um, if propanolol doesn't work, you might then go for second line agents such as primidone. Uh, some people even go for topiramate uh, to try and treat tremor. I think there you've got to have a discussion with the patient and talk about you know the risks, benefits of treatment. And obviously the potential for side effects is worth mentioning. There's a few practical measures that we, um, that we also discuss with patients. So uh, something that if the tremor is particularly uh, troubling and um, you know when holding objects, it sounds like it might be for him, you could even try light wrist weights, which won't get rid of the tremor, but might reduce the amplitude of the tremor. And then there are even some things you can buy on, you know, online, things like the hand steady mug that are, um, that, that are, are very handy for patients where tremor's the problem because it's a mug that won't spill, basically. The, kind of the, uh, the tremor um, doesn't interfere with the, the cup's upright position. So that those are things I, w I would think about. I mean, you're going to follow a patient like this up, I suspect, and, and see how things go. And if the things did become troubling and medical treatment were to fail, then there are other treatments such as DBS, which is probably a bit beyond uh, my own expertise, uh, but there are other options like that. And I think I would probably be directing the patient towards something like the Tremor Foundation, which is a really useful resource for patients uh, about not just this tremor, but other forms of tremor as well. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you for your approach and the, the, the systematic approach you have to that patient. And I think we can move on to the next uh, person in the clinic now. Okay, thanks, Dean. Great. So the next patient attending the clinic um, you've been asked to see uh, is from the GP. And they've written that, could you please see this 50-year-old lady in the neurology hot clinic who is presented with facial weakness? So again, John, just from this brief scenario, do you have any initial thoughts about this? So again, this is not, not an uncommon uh, scenario. I mean, there's, there's very limited information there, which I think means we can talk through, I guess, the possibilities. So we know there's facial weakness there. I guess the first thing I'd want to know is, okay, is this just one side of the face that's weak or, or is it both sides? Perhaps um, if it's one side of the face that's weak, we're thinking a problem with the uh, facial nerve, also facial nerve innervation to the face, whether that's the upper motor neurone part of that nerve or the lower motor neurone. Whereas if it's bilateral, yeah, it could be bilateral facial nerve palsies, but um, you know, you think of other things such as uh, maybe neuromuscular junction disorders or a myo myopathy. Um, I mentioned there about if it is just one side of the face, um, I guess the most important distinction um, is based on what we would see on examination and, and to a certain extent as aspects of the history, which is whether this is an upper motor neurone problem or lower motor neurone problem of the affecting the face. So the way you can tell the difference between that is in an upper motor neurone problem, the forehead is spared, um, whereas in a lower motor neurone problem of the facial nerve, uh, the forehead would be uh, involved. 
So that's to do with the bilateral innovation of the facial nucleus, but in particular, the aspects of the facial nucleus that um, serve the forehead and upper part of the face. Um, I think there's uh, lots of useful neurology textbooks explaining that, and we can put something in the case notes here to, to show a diagram of what we mean by that. So that, that would help us with localization, upper versus lower motor neuro problem. And then as with all neurology, we need to know about the onset and progression of this. So I'd want to know about the tempo of how it came on. Obviously, if this has come on very abruptly, it's well known out there that, that sudden facial weakness can be a, a cause of stroke, you know, could be a stroke presentation. So that might be um, a bit of a concern if this could have been a stroke that, you know, has been referred in as, as an outpatient. Uh, whereas if it's been more gradually progressive over time, perhaps that's more, um, you know, more uh, indicative of perhaps an inflammatory or, or something like that sort of process. And then uh, obviously we just know about the facial weakness there. You'd want to know are there any other neurological symptoms. I'd want to know about limb weakness. Is speech affected? Is this an episodic problem? Is it continuous? So hopefully you'll be uh, you'll be able to go through some of that? Yes, absolutely. So we have some more information with regards to the history and examination. So she first noticed the symptom a couple of days ago. She felt a slight discomfort around the ear initially and felt like something was pulling at the one side of her face. There was also some associated numbness with this. The symptoms came on over a few hours, but when she got up in the next morning and looked in the mirror, she realised she could not move one side of her face. She was unable to smile on that side, close her eye completely, or lift her eyebrow. She has not noticed any further pain in the ear, and there's no discomfort or skin changes around the ear itself. Her hearing feels slightly less sensitive, but no change to taste. There's been no history of trauma or surgery prior, and there are no masses felt on the side of her face. This has not happened to her before. With regards to her past medical history, she has type 2 diabetes, well controlled on metformin. She has no known drug allergies and is not on any other medications. She has no family history of any similar problems or other neurological diseases. On examination, she has complete facial weakness affecting the left side. There is forehead involvement and she's unable to close her eye completely with evidence of a Bell's phenomena. There's no skin changes around or within the ear and sensation to light touch and pinprick is normal in the face and the remainder of the neurological examination is unremarkable. So John, given this extra information, do you have any more thoughts? Yeah, so I think what I'll do is I'll actually start with the examination and work backwards from this because I think the examination helps us to localise where the problem is here and that's something that um, if you listen to the localization podcast we do, we often emphasise localising first and then trying to work out the etiology uh, after that. So, so she's got weakness down one side of the face, so we're thinking this is a, a, a problem of the facial nerve innovation to the face and uh, it's involving both the forehead and the lower part of the face so the upper and lower part of the face so as I said earlier this is very indicative of a, a lower motor neuron problem of the facial nerve so this could be either the facial nerve nucleus the small bit of the facial nerve that travels within the the, the lower motor neuron part of the facial nerve that travels within the pons or the peripheral nerve as it exits from the pons the other important things I guess to say with this are that the rest of the neurological examination is completely normal. Now, as I said, it could still be that this is the facial nucleus or the bit of the facial nerve that travels within the pons, the lower motor neuron facial nerve, but actually with both of those you would expect other neurological signs because of how close that facial nerve runs 
to things such as the abducens nerve. So I think it's more likely to be a lower motor neuron problem, but after it's exited the brain stem, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so then we go back to the history and we think about um, the potential cause. So we think it's less likely to be a stroke on the basis that this is lower motor neuron anyway, but this history is not typical for a vascular cause, which would really expect to be sudden in onset. Instead, it's kind of more of a kind of gradual over a couple of days. And usually uh, that kind of time course, we think more about sort of inflammatory things or, or you know. Now, I think it's worth mentioning, um, it's worth being aware of what a Bell's palsy is, because this is probably the most common cause of facial nerve palsy that we see. And it's worth being aware of the common features of a Bell's palsy, because it's a, it's a well-recognized clinical syndrome. So typically with a Bell's palsy, you'd get a unilateral lower motor neuron facial nerve weakness, which comes on acutely, but not suddenly. Uh, and the recovery usually begins within four weeks. And commonly associated with this is mild to moderate ear pain. You can also get altered taste, um, hyperacusis, so increased hearing on the affected ear, as well as symptoms of a dry eye and even a dry mouth. And really knowing about that Bell's palsy syndrome can help you recognize when the patient's giving the story, whether or not there are features that, uh, that fit with that. And I think we shouldn't just think lower motor neuron, seventh nerve palsy equals Bell's palsy. You know, it's not the same thing. There are other things can, that can affect the nerve, but because of how common it is, you kind of can think, okay, does this fit? And if it doesn't fit, then you work backwards and you try and work out what it is. So other things that you would specifically need to be checking for there is are there any vestibular or hearing abnormalities? That would go against a Bell's palsy. Is there severe pain? You wouldn't expect that to be present with a Bell's palsy. You might have some pain, some discomfort, but severe pain would be unusual. If you feel systemically unwell with fevers, temperatures, or anything like that, that would be atypical. If there's a rash or prominent rash around the ear canal, that would also make you think of perhaps something else like Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. And then finally, if there's any history of cancer, uh, you'd have to think, could this be more of an infiltrative problem affecting the, the, the basal meninges, taking out the facial nerve? So I think awareness of what a Bell's palsy is and then awareness of some of the red flags that would maybe point you away from that. But in this case, the story actually sounds very typical for a Bell's palsy. And, and I would probably be counselling the patient towards that at this stage. Great. Thanks, Sean. That's a great overview of a summary of, the, I guess, the most common presentation and obviously the red flags of what we should be looking out for. So just to very briefly touch upon the kind of course and prognosis, I guess, of a Bell's palsy. So are there any treatments that you would recommend and what advice would you give to patients about the course? Yeah, so in general, I think we can be quite positive with the patients about the course. So majority of patients make a good recovery. Uh, some patients, the recovery might be uh, slightly incomplete, but it's a minority of patients that would be left with a significant facial weakness. Although, unfortunately, uh, there are some patients where that, that is the course that it runs. Um, there is fairly good evidence from systematic reviews that if given early enough, a, course of, a short course of steroids with an antiviral medication can actually improve recovery. Um, and certainly that's recommended by NICE guidance in the UK. And I would probably be um, speaking to the patient about that. Short course of steroids should be okay. You just wanna be careful with the diabetes. Obviously that could cause problems with the blood sugars and you might ask the patient to keep a bit of a, an eye on that. So the patient is gonna have symptoms for some time still, and it's really important that we manage complications of this. So one of the issues here is the patient is struggling with eye closure and they're very dry eyes. 
Um, so we would often either suggest they uh, have lubricants for the eye or even an eye patch, something like that, if, that, if that's helpful. So I think sometimes we would refer to um, ophthalmology to give advice on things like that. So um, yeah, in this case, it sounds very characteristic for Bell's palsy, the, the nature of the onset, the, the lack of other abnormal neurology. Um, but I think the, the key thing here is localizing to a lower motor neuron seventh nerve palsy is just the start. And then you wanna make sure you're not missing other things that could affect that seventh, facial, uh, seventh cranial nerve. Good. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, I think the next patient has arrived. Okay, good. So, we run into time. <laughs> <laughs> just about. Just about. So, just moving on to the next referral. So, uh, this person has been referred in by their GP, and the referral says, "Can you please see this 26-year-old lady who presents who reports symptoms of dizziness for a number of months?" So, not much to go off there, John. But what would be your initial thoughts with uh, with this referral? Okay, so. Again, a very common thing that we would be referred dizziness. And I think uh, the first thing to say is that when you hear the complaint is of dizziness, you need to make sure that yourself and the patient are kind of speaking the same language with what we mean by that term. So it might be used quite differently by a doctor compared to perhaps what a patient means by it. So you want to distinguish, first of all, is this a vertigo that the patient is describing? So is this a, a feeling, an, a, sort of an illusionary movement of sway or rotation or movement that we typically think of as vertigo? Because if it's vertigo, then yeah, we're thinking, could there be um, either uh, an otological cause for this or could it be a neurological cause for it? And you want to try and distinguish that from other terms that might be called dizziness but actually that aren't dizziness so lightheadedness so feelings of presyncope the person may say they feel dizzy so you want to make sure they're not describing a sort of a vague sense of unease or uh, uh, of presyncope or even of anxiety or things like that so i think get the patient to tell you in their own words without using the word dizzy what they mean uh, by that symptom if it is vertigo i think you really need to know is this an abrupt onset of acute vertigo, because if, if it is that, then there's a very different kind of diagnostic pathway you'd go down. And in fact, we've got a podcast of that with a friend of mine, Dr. Regan Cooley, who's a stroke doctor, and he goes through the approach to acute vertigo. And that's very important because some of those patients, it could be a, a stroke and you wouldn't want to, to miss that. If it's not a, just an abrupt onset vertigo, you need to think, is it episodic? Is it continuous? Does it wax and wane in severity? Are there, are there things that make it worse, things that make it better? I think also, depending on how long it's been going on for, you, you really do want to know, is it what it's like now different from how it started? Sometimes uh, we forget that when we see a patient, we kind of focus on how things are now, but actually a lot of the clues to the diagnosis can come from how it was at the beginning. And then, I guess in, to a neurologist, something that we would definitely be looking for is other associated headaches or migraine type features, because migraines are very common cause of dizziness that we see, or reported uh, cause of dizziness that we see. And um, yes, yeah, so those are, those are my kind of preclinic thoughts on the case. <clears throat> so this 20 or 26 year, year old lady has arrived to clinic and you have an opportunity now to take a history and examine her. So when she arrived, she complains that actually she had a distinct episode of room spinning around about eight months ago, so quite typical of vertigo. And this occurred after quite a bad head cold, um, which 24 hours later, she then developed this room spinning. And she had quite a lot of difficulty with walking and quite a lot of nausea. 
during this episode she remained in bed for a few days and it really just sort of slowly got better over the over the course of a few days but she did get a course of something called beta histine from her gp to try and help that along its way however over the last six months she started to notice that she's got ongoing symptoms of what she describes as dizziness it's very different in nature to the vertigo symptoms that she had uh, around eight months ago this time she now just generally feels a bit off balance and it's particularly worse when she's in busy situations such as in supermarkets or if she's in a crowded area. She also, fi she also finds it gets worse when she's in, a, in um, areas of quite distinct patterns, so for example patterned carpets or patterned wallpapers. She generally feels unsteady and feels like she's constantly being rocked and the symptoms do wax and wane in severity so sometimes they can be better, sometimes they can be worse. They're there all the time, all the way throughout the day, but they can feel slightly better if, she, if she's sitting or lying down. She's normally fit and well and on no other medication. When you examine her, there's no evidence of any cerebellar signs, so there's no evidence of nystagmus, dysarthria or ataxia. In terms of her eye movements, they're completely normal and there's no gaze palsies that you can see. Her upper and lower limb examination, from a motor perspective, is completely unremarkable. Her sensory examination is unremarkable and that includes proprioception and vibration sense and her, and her um, Romberg's is negative. She is slightly unsteady when she's doing that but actually um, it's not augmented on closing the eyes and it can slightly improve on distraction. Her gait appears normal but as she walks around the room she tends to just have this tendency of placing her hands on some of the furniture or objects but doesn't actually appear to put th pressure through them or, or appear to rest on them. You perform a head thrust which is normal and you also do an Epley manoeuvre which is normal. So quite a bit in the history there and quite a lot on the examination in terms mm -hmm. of detail. Uh, what are your thoughts now and what, what, what uh, approach might you have to this patient? Okay, so um, I guess first thing to say, it, you know, it's not that presentation we were talking about of sudden onset acute vertigo. So I don't think this is someone that we need to be, you know, urgently worrying about a stroke or something like that and, you know, rushing them to the emergency department. That, that's probably the first thing to say. Um, I'll probably focus a bit more on the history here because with the examination, I'm not sure there's a lot of their, what we would say, hard signs to, to go on there um, to guide us. So. With that history, so I think what's quite interesting here is that what the patient's now describing is actually quite different from perhaps what happened eight months ago. So she, it, it sounds like what she had eight months ago was more of what we would think of as kind of a, a true vertigo, so that kind of room spinning. And usually the causes of that are, um, as I said, it's either a kind of a problem to do with the, the balance organ in the inner ear, so something like a vestibular neuritis versus a kind of acute brainstem type event uh, which you know vascular causes are the, the ones I guess we'd worry about but could up, could be other things as well um, whereas now now it doesn't sound like she's describing vertigo so much as more kind of a feeling of disequilibrium or imbalance and I think that's quite important and um, you, you would certainly you know hope that you you would discuss that a little bit more with her just to clarify that that is what's going on there I would say that the the episode that she had back at eight months ago, so she was given a course of beta histine, it got better after a few days. So it's actually quite suggestive of maybe a vestibular neuritis, which is quite a common thing that we, that we do see. I think it's very difficult to now retrospectively diagnose that. But obviously the doctor that saw her at the time must have been thinking along those lines to give her beta histine.
also the other thing is that it doesn't sound like this is you know this isn't an episodic thing so another common cause or vestibular cause of vertigo that we see that goes on and that can happen again and again is bppv benign paroxysmal positional vertigo this would be a very atypical history for that normally the history with that is the patient is turning over in bed and they get very brief but fairly abrupt onset episodes of vert rotational vertigo that eventually subside and that's due to problems with the uh, crystals in the inner ear kind of getting dislodged. I noticed here you did an Epley maneuver and it was normal so again that, that probably makes that less likely but even the history for that sounds very unlikely. Um, what I don't know, what I haven't got from the history here is any history of headaches so if this was someone that was getting very prominent headaches especially headaches maybe associated with photophobia, phonophobia, uh, um, feeling a bit sickly that makes you think of chronic migraines, then I would think, okay, that might be an explanation because we know that patients with chronic migraine, one of the issues is they get kind of this amplification of, uh, of neural signaling and dizziness can commonly accompany that. There is another condition that are called persistent postural perceptual dizziness or triple PD. And actually this story sounds very, um, very similar to what patients with that will, will report. So this is a, a functional neurological problem, so i.e. this is due to dysfunction of the nervous system. And it's a chronic functional disorder which is characterized by non-spinning vertigo and perceived unsteadiness, typically worse in an upright posture and when placed in complex visual environments, which sounds like what she's got. We don't fully understand that the mechanisms behind it, but we know that very often these patients will have had a triggering vestibular insult uh, and it may have been that that uh, vestibular neuritis eight months ago was a triggering insult for this lady and this is kind of like a decompensation uh, sort of since that. So um, yeah, complex case, um, but you know, I think hopefully by talking through it there we can at least talk through the general approach to, to the patient who's dizzy and uh, I would probably actually be thinking about referring this um, patient onwards to vestibular rehab because there are some sort of exercises that can help with this. That's great, thank you John, and particularly highlighting the importance of the history there and also asking the important negatives with regards to the, the headache uh, within that case, so thank you for that. Um, and I think our next patient has just arrived. Last patient at the clinic, relatively light clinic. So, the GP referral for this patient is, can you please review this 55-year-old female mm. with right-sided facial pain occurring over the last few months? So again, John, any initial thoughts on this? Okay, so, um, yeah, so facial pain... So I guess uh, speak it, thinking more generally to begin before we get to the specifics of it. So by facial pain, what I think of by that is the kind of the bit of the front of your face. I mean, I don't need to state that. Yeah. So obviously cranial pain is a very common topic we see and that will often fall under the umbrella term of headache. Usually when patients use the term facial pain, they mean something a bit more specific. So they're kind of talking about pain of the face, pain affecting the face. Um, <laughs> So um, I think, first of all, you just want to clarify, is that actually what, you know, what this is, or is this someone who's describing what we would perhaps think of as more of a headache, so more of a cranial pain syndrome? In general, there are kind of three causes of, of cranial pain or discomfort. So you've got the, the very large category that we call migraine, um, which a lot of headaches will fall into, whether episodic or chronic uh, headache disorders. You've got a very subset of headache syndromes called the trigeminal autonomic cephalgias or TA TAC headaches. Um, these tend to be strictly side locked and there are lots of different subtypes. 
And then finally, you've got a group of headaches that we call the neuralgias. So the most common that we see is the trigeminal neuralgia, which is kind of the neuro, uh, a neuralgic type pain affecting the trigeminal nerve. And then you can also get occipital neuralgia as well. You can, e you can even get glossopharyngeal neuralgia as well. So in general, you've got your migraines, you've got your TAC headaches, and you've got your neuralgias. When people say facial pain, I guess we're thinking more neuralgia, in particular trigeminal neuralgia, but you'd want to dig a bit deeper and just clarify that that is what we mean by that. You want to know about location. So is this bilateral, one side? Is it, um, does it affect both sides at different times? If it is a trigeminal neuralgia, which branches? Is it kind of across the cheek and down into the jaw? Is it more around the eye? And there's obviously the trigeminal nerve has three branches to it. And really you want to get the patient to be talking about the characteristic of this pain. So, you know, trying to get them to use descriptive words other than just severe to describe what it feels like. Um, is, it, is it a dull burning ache? Is it a, a sharp stabbing pain? Anything that makes it better, anything that makes it worse? What medications they've tried? Do they have any autonomic symptoms? So what we mean by that is running of the eye, watering of the eye, running of the nostril, block nostril. So yeah, quite a lot of digging still to do here. Um, further information for you. So from the history, the, the symptoms started 12 months ago with sharp shooting right-sided facial pain and it's never affected the left side. It only affects the lower aspects of the face, specifically never the forehead. It typically lasts for brief seconds, and she often experiences clusters of attacks. This can happen two to three times per week before settling down for a couple of months or so. They can occur suddenly, and they often are worse when brushing her teeth, touching her face, or even eating. They then seem to settle for a few minutes before the shooting pain can start again. There's been no autonomic symptoms, so specifically tearing, facial flushing or running of the nose, and she's tried paracetamol and ibuprofen with minimal effects. Her examination was unremarkable. So again, yes, from that history, do you have any further thoughts to guide us? Yeah, so I think um, we talked about there the kind of three general groups here. So there's really no features here that would make you think migraine or trigeminal autonomic cephalgia. Uh, and instead, this does this is how patients describe neuralgia type pain. So these kind of sharp shooting pains affecting just one side of the face is very suggestive of trigeminal neuralgia. Even the distribution that she describes is fairly characteristic there. So affecting the kind of the cheekbone and the jaw more than the upper division around the eye, although all three divisions can be affected by it. And uh, this kind of uh, uh, worsening with uh, with touch, with brushing the teeth, with eating, with cold air, those are all things that we do see in patients with trigeminal neuralgia. So that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Um, obviously, as I said, there are other forms of neuralgia. So trigeminal neuralgia is the most common that we see. Uh, you can get occipital neuralgia, but that tends to be more around the back of the head. And glossopharyngeal neuralgia tends to be more around the throat, typically worse with swallowing as well. So none of that's really coming across. So. I would probably on the basis of this be saying, yeah, this sounds like trigeminal neuralgia. Um, I think it's worth uh, thinking about trialing treatment in a, in a case like this. So I would think of neuropathic painkillers, things like carbamazepine or gabapentin, perhaps might be the first things you go for. If they're ineffective, there are other things, um, lamotrigine, for instance, that you might consider doing. It's worth, worth bearing in mind that the trigeminal nerve can be involved in other pathologies um, and we call that trigeminal neuropathy. 
that might be a bit different from a neuralgia. So rather than these kind of like sharp, st sharp stabbing pains, it's more of a constant sort of ache or a burning or uh, more insidious symptoms. And in those situations, you might consider scanning the, the, the skull just to check there's no sort of infiltrative problems affecting the, the trigeminal nerve. Um, but yeah, I think I would trial some painkillers and see how she, she ha see how she gets on uh, with that. Um, yeah. So yeah. when it comes to trigeminal neuralgia, would you ever consider scanning those patients? Yeah. So um, that's a that's a really good question, and I think um, the the tricky thing with this always is it's a very well recognised entity, trigeminal neuralgia, and you we'll see lots of patients perhaps where they respond really well to the medications and don't ever need to see a neurologist. Sometimes, usually by the time they see a neurologist, either some of the medications haven't worked or we need to be thinking about you know, other potential causes for it. So I think in reality, we do very often do MRI scans uh, on these patients. So I think worth stating that CT would be, you know, not really your investigation of choice, it would be MRI if you're going to scan. Now, what you want to be looking for on an MRI scan here is, is there a symptomatic cause for trigeminal neuralgia? So most of the time we don't expect to see anything on the scan, but sometimes we might see this could be a presentation of someone with an MS plaque, for instance, that's affecting the trigeminal nucleus. So you might, you know, see things like that affecting the trigeminal nucleus or trigeminal nerve. And then also you can, if you get very dedicated views of the trigeminal nerve, you can look for blood vessels in close proximity to the nerve. And if you see contact between the blood vessel and the nerve, that can be amen well, potentially amenable for certain treatments that they can do. So they can do uh, balloon decompressions, uh, the neurosurgeons can. So if you're gonna do a scan, you'd wanna make sure you're doing dedicated views of the trigeminal nerve, particularly to look for a contact of a blood vessel, as well as look for um, you know, a symptomatic cause. But I think in a case like this, it wouldn't stop you still cracking on with treatment in the meantime. And, and it may be that, you know, as a GP or as a general med medic, you may refer to neurology some of these cases. Okay. Okay. Good. That's great. I think that's the clinic wrapped up. So uh, can head on off. Thank you Excellent. very much. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.